Hi, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. My name is David. Hey. I'm grateful to be here and grateful to be sober tonight. Alec, thank you so much. And Jessa and Zoe, I can't see you, but I saw you on Zoom. Um, I'm grateful to be here and grateful to be sober tonight. Um, happy, happy anniversary. I, I was, I was going to ask if anybody uh, was, you know, here 70 years ago, but you're right. It's obvious they aren't. Um, <laughs> So uh, let's see, I'm, I'm, I'm to tell you uh, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. I, um, I have a sobriety date, it's October 24th, 1989. Uh, I was 28 years old when I was separated from alcohol for what I hope to be the last time. Um, because of rooms like this, people like you and, and uh, sponsorship. My first AA meeting, I was 22 years old. Uh, I probably had a decent qualifying story in Alcoholics Anonymous by the time I was 16. Uh, which happened over the, across the Potomac River in Arlington. Um, I have a sponsor. My sponsor is aware that he sponsors me. Uh, it's not a theoretical relationship, and I am a member. In last time I checked, in good standing with a, my home group, the Simple Actions Group. We meet on Monday nights, 7 p.m. Currently on Zoom in Norfolk, Virginia. So uh, I, uh, since since we're Zoom, and I got a couple of jokes that I I usually tell, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell this one. <laughs> Um, but I'm going to tell you a story, um, and I don't tell this often from the podium, but I, I'm sentimental because I, I, I did grow up in Arlington, Virginia, and, um, and my dad, I grew up in an alcoholic home, I'll say that right now, and what I will also say about that right now is that I, I, I no longer believe that that has anything to do with why I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I got a lot of hours on bar stools and psychiatrist's office trying to Un, un, unlink that thing, you know, that made me tick, you know, somebody to blame, maybe, you know, um, but, uh, and, and when I say that, I don't, I don't at all mean to minimize the things that happened to us when we're children. I know those things are significant. I just don't believe it has anything to do with me being an alcoholic. But anyway, I did grow up in an alcoholic home. Uh, those guys made drinking look pretty good. My old man was, was a guy who led kind of a charmed life, you know. He, one thing you have to know about him is that he was a veterinarian. Um, and he was very proud of that. He uh, introduced himself as uh, Dr. F. And uh, even as a little kid, that used to embarrass me, you know? I mean, I, I remember being like five years old thinking, come on, Pop, lighten up on the doctor thing. You know what I mean? You're, you're a veterinarian, you know? Uh, but that just shows you the self-obsession and selfishness that I've, I had long before I took my first drink. I was embarrassed by this man, right? Never mind that he had done the work. And, but anyway, he was a guy, captain of the football team, married the head cheerleader, made fast friends, made a bunch of dough, uh, went, went on a full-ride scholarship to Wake Forest, football scholarship, and he was there when Honor, Honor Palmer was there, and he's got stories of playing poker games with Arnold Palmer in college. And um, Anyway, so he's a hot shot, and um, this would have been 1965. This is, this is hearsay. I was four years old in 1965. Um, but this is the way he tells the story. My mother doesn't contradict it. But anyway, my father had bought a brand new 1965 Malibu SS Chevelle candy apple red, you know, with a white rag top, 396, four speed, you know, a classic muscle car, just beautiful. Paid cash for it, drove it off the showroom floor, lost control of it on 35th Street um, over there in Arlington, went off the road, up a guy wire smashed into a, uh, a telephone pole, broke the telephone pole, power goes out in the neighborhood. My father spills out of the, this now totaled car 
and he did what I consider to be a very alcoholic thing. He looked around and he just went home. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, and it was a different time. This is the, this is the 60s and, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I suppose that the nice police officers, you know, discovered the scene, figured out whose car it was, went knocking on the, um, our, our, our door. And my drunken, banged up, bloody, bruised father answers the door, you know, and they're talking to the officer. And the officer says to him, Dr. Francis, uh, you realize I'm going to have to give you a citation. And my, my father says, I wasn't aware they gave awards for this sort of thing. <laughs> so those are my people. That's where I come from, you know. The, the, those, those guys made it look good, you know. And I, and I couldn't wait to get started, man. I... Um, I was uh, 12 years old, and the older boys in the neighborhood told us youngsters that if you take a shot of beer every minute, you'll get really drunk and you won't get sick. We thought that was a solid program of action. And uh, so me and two of my buddies took 12 beers into what we called our fort. It was really just an abandoned tool shed that we'd painted psychedelic, and, and we sat in there. Um, back, you got to be old to remember this, but the uh, candles used to not be dripless. You used to be able to kind of create this molten psychedelic art spilling over these gallon, empty gallon uh, wine bottles, you know. It was really just a monument to a waste of time, but, but, but it really felt like something you could be proud of, you know. And, and we sat in there by candlelight smoking these cherry cigars and staring at the clock and doing a shot of beer a minute. And I remember, I can smell that room, man, you know what I mean? Like some people remember their first kiss. I, I don't remember my first kiss, but I remember that first drunk like I, like I was there yesterday, you know? And um, so it, what ended up happening to me was I got those four beers into my 12-year-old body and alcohol did for me what it does for people like me. It absolutely lit me up. I was suddenly 10 feet tall and drastically handsome and able to sing apparently. Um, I, w I was in the, in the presence of the most awesome dudes I'd ever met in my life, and, and weren't they lucky to hang out with a cat like me, you know? And, um, you know, by the end of the night, I had vomited and passed out. My available ear was used as an ashtray. Um, I came to sometime later, vomited one more time, and had an earful of uh, dried cigar ashes and mustard. I don't remember mustard at the beginning of the evening, but somehow mustard got involved. You know, and, and I couldn't wait to do that again. I, I found my calling. This is what, this is, this is, this is something to do. You know, this is a thing. And that's really the template for me for the next 16 years. I drink to get drunk. I'm not interested in being tipsy. Um, I don't care about a warm glow. Catching a buzz doesn't hold any charm for me. I'm, I like getting ripped out of the frame, falling down, knee walking. I like getting regrettably drunk. You know, you, you go to a wedding and, and you see that guy, you know, that look how drunk that guy is. I'm that guy. That guy who's hitting on your wife right in front of you. I'm that guy. And that's just drinking to me. That's just the way drinking always was and always wanted to be. And I only want to hang out with people that drink like that. You know what I mean? I know you ever try to get drunk with people that aren't alcoholics? Super frustrating. You know, they do weird stuff like put their hand over the glass. No, 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 I'm good. I'm good. What do you mean you're good, man? I'm trying to drain this pitcher because I can't bear to look at an empty pitcher on the table. I need hope in front of me at all moments. You're, getting, you're wrecking my program here. They don't, it doesn't seem particularly important to them, you know? You want to go get some beers on Friday night, David? Yeah, I do. <laughs>
and then you don't seem to care whether you get another one or not, and, and maybe you even want to have a conversation, get to know me a little bit, I don't want to hang out with you. I want to, I want to hang out with Jonathan over there. I want to get this thing done, get it into the gutter as fast as possible, you know, rip it up. Anyway, that's me. That's drinking. That's all drinking will ever be. Um, that's the only thing I'm interested in. Before I proceed, thank you, uh, Midtown Group, for the invitation here. If I didn't do that, um, Alec was so kind, making me feel comfortable here. Um, you know, and it, and it's people making making other people feel comfortable. I believe that saves lives around here, and I might get to that. But you guys saved my life just with a welcome, you know, just with a little bit of kindness. Um, so anyway. I don't have a terrific loss story. I, uh, I didn't accumulate a lot of things. You know, I dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. Uh, I found out you could take delivery of large packages on credit and whack them up into smaller packages and distribute them to your friends for fun and profit. Uh, just another moment where I felt like I had arrived, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> and I'd essentially dropped out. And then I started seeing people going places and doing things and knowing where they were going and why they were going there. I don't know about you guys, but I've never been able to answer, what do you want to be when you grow up, David? I don't know. And you can't say wasted. <laughs> you know, that's just not socially acceptable. So, but I start seeing this stuff. I went back to high school. I doubled up on my classes. I finished honor roll. I graduated on time. All that is evidence to me that I'm a guy with power and control and choice, that I've got this, I can handle it. You know what I mean? And. Um, by the time I'm 19 years old, I've been to the funerals of four of my friends. Uh, none of their death certificates say untreated alcoholism. They say stuff like car accidents, gun accidents, motorcycle accidents, and suicide. And those weren't people I was acquainted with. Those were, the, those were, those were my brothers. Those were, those were the cats I was running with, you know. Those, the other guys like me who were in it to win it, you know. I, I came to get down, you know. Um, so. Uh, so the cost of business is kind of high. The first, the first dead body I saw was my best friend, Tommy Grancy, right across the river. And um, you can't show up at something like that sober, you know. He died at 220 off of uh, GW Parkway, Spout Run exit. You know, you know what's going on at 220 in the morning, right? You, know, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here, sir. <laughs> and uh, I walk into that thing. I am on my heels drunk, you know. and, and uh, I walk into that uh, that room, and it and it was it seemed like there was as many people as I'm looking at right now in that little uh, room. I, I don't even know if it, I, I don't even know if it was a in my mind it's like a school, but it couldn't have been a school. Anyways, an institutional room packed with people, and I can see my brother Tommy lying back there in profile. Oh Jesus, Tommy's dead, and um, and I see his mother leave the body of her dead son and come through that crowd to me. Said, don't let this happen to you, David Francis. And I remember thinking, you know, like somebody, if somebody who was sane, somebody who was present, somebody who was in the moment might have been able to hear something like that, you know, might have been able to, you know, the cost of business is getting kind of high, you know. I'll tell you how I heard it, and I didn't say this out loud, but what I thought in my head was, there's a lot of people in this room. I don't know why she's picking on me. I just lost my best friend, you know. So that's me. That's that's how self-absorbed I am. That's how selfish I am. That's how deep in me that I am. You know, I um, so I start having these near misses and 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 uh, stuff like that, and and I'm getting the idea that this is 
obviously an un untenable situation. I'm going to have to stop this one day. The thing about alcoholism, you know, um, we're told this is a progressive illness, right? I don't even know what that means, you know. But for me, what that looks like is over any considerable period of time, it gets worse, not better, you know. And in the beginning, when I think about it, alcohol did so much for me, you know. And it did, and it cost so little, you know. To feel 10 feet tall and bulletproof and drastically handsome and problem-free, you know, I describe myself as an anxious, worried person, right? You guys call it fear. <laughs> I call it anxiety because anxiety sounds much better. But uh, in the beginning, alcohol takes all that away and sets me free, and, it, and that's a small price to pay for a little hangover, you know? A little headache, maybe a little, maybe a little uh, thing I shouldn't have said, you know? That all seems like small-time stuff. But over time, it does less and less for me, which is the greatest insult. It does less and less for me and more and more to me. You know, in the end of my drinking, I, I, it, didn't, it didn't set me free. It put me in prison. I, I was afraid to leave my house. I was afraid to answer my telephone. I couldn't look people in the eye. I was so full of shame and guilt and remorse, anything but free, you know. So I went off the ride, you know, and, and, and it's clear to me, absolutely crystal clear to me that I've got a drinking problem. I'm not going to admit that out loud to anybody else. But this has got to go, you know. And the, the, the terrible news about that is if you have a drinking problem, you don't need Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't, you don't need 12 steps. You don't need to have a spiritual experience. You just need to stop drinking. Because if you stop drinking and all your problems go away, you're going to be just fine. Attaboy. Rock on. You know? I, but I've got alcoholism. I get worse when I stop drinking. Well, I stop drinking. I put the plug in the old jug, man. You don't give me a little liquid courage, a little bit of liquid hope. You know, you stop drinking, you feel better, right? I'll tell you what, I feel better when I stop, stop drinking. I feel a distinct lack of appreciation from those around me. <laughs> I feel I, I work for idiots. I live in the wrong town. I'm in the wrong relationship. I've got to get out of here, you know? You guys call it restlessness, you know? I, I just call it, this place sucks. <laughs> I gotta go. You know, and then I got to live in there. I got to live in there with alcoholism, untreated, restless, irritable, discontent, ill at ease, frightened. Eventually, I, I, I need relief. That needs to be fixed somehow, right? And I don't know about you guys, but I tried lots of things to combat my alcoholism. <laughs> I, I did weekend. I did weekends only. If you do, if you just drink on the weekends, eventually, you know, the weekend starts on Thursday, finishes up around Wednesday morning. You know, there's a good solid six, eight hours of atonement in there, you know. Um, veganism, churches, uh, new job, new girl. Um, I called my sister one time. I called her. I said, I figured it out. And she said, what? And I said, vitamins. <laughs> she said, you're crazy. And I, I'd read a book about vitamins. And I was sitting there. I had her on the phone. And I got a, a blender. And I'm throwing, like, baby spinach and brewer's yeast and you know, $50 worth of stuff I'd bought at the health food store and, and rum. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I felt a lot better after I drank that, you know. I was like, this is it. So I tried all that stuff, man, but I still think I have a drinking problem. And um, so anyway, I, uh, I started trying to stop. That's all I'm trying to tell you. I started trying to stop. And I was convinced if I stopped, everything would be fine. And... Um, 
And so what ended up happening is I would just basically, you know, have periods of uncomfortable sobriety, and, uh, and then I'd get to the point where I just had to drink again, you know, and then I'd go on a little bender, I'd go on a little binge, you know. And, I, and when I was younger, I could pull it off. I could, I could go two or three months without doing anything, you know. And, um, but then when you go on these little benders, and, 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 and I, I know where I am. I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and uh, talk all night about drugs. Drugs are absolutely part of my story. The uh, answer to just about any question that you might have regarding drugs, the answer would be absolutely yes. <laughs> Can we get more, you know? Uh, I never got a narcotics habit, but I like the uh, I like the go fast stuff. You got a little you got a little something to keep me uh, popping. I like to be wide awake, blacked out. You know. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you get off work on a Friday afternoon. You got nowhere to be until Monday morning. You don't want to waste any of that time sleeping. You know, take a nap, wreck your whole well-cultivated buzz, you know. I mean, I, I can't have that. I'm Let's go, let's go, let's go. So I'm, uh, I, I go on these binges and wreck myself pretty thoroughly and then, and then swear off forever again, you know. I, and uh, I'm, I'm on one of these binges. You ever stay up for three or four days straight? If you, if you do that, um, your brain will eventually abandon you. <laughs> You know, I mean, eventually you'll just start having a dream. And you're out there walking and talking in the world, you know, doing the Lord's work. I never even heard the term blackout until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I just thought it was absolutely normal not to remember everything that happened the night before. That's just drinking. That's the way drinking has always been. Doesn't everybody have to call their friends and say, hey, what happened after Billy jumped out of the car? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But I also I know about blackouts, but I also know what it's like to come to and remember. I know what it's like to come to and remember the things that I said last night to people I supposedly love, the things that I did under the influence of alcohol. And that stuff just gets increasingly appalling and abhorrent to me, just absolutely disgusted with what I'm capable of. And I got to live with that. And I'm going to drink about that. That's the only choice that I have to deal with my mountain of problems, my astonishingly difficult to solve problems that have all piled up on me. The only way out is to drink. So that's where I'm stuck. I'm stuck between trying not to drink and going on these little binges. And I'm, I'm sitting in the pad one night. I'm the only one up. And back then, there was no cable television. There was no, there was no device that you could record something on. You just had to take whatever they offered you. <laughs> There's three or four channels, whatever was on, that was it. And, uh, and so I'm kind of one eye watching this TV all lonely and wasted. And, and, uh, and this commercial for Serenity Lodge comes on. This is back when the treatment center, the insurance companies were giving everybody a 28-day vacation. And um, so this commercial, I can still see that too right now. Uh, Good-looking dude, khaki pants, uh, open collar, collared shirt, sitting on the front porch of his house. He says, I lost my home, I lost my family, I lost my job, but thank God I still have my health. And the voice announcer comes on and goes, last year Bob started a whole new life at Serenity Lodge. <laughs> I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> a whole new life and I'm gonna get me one of them at Serenity Lodge <laughs> on Monday for sure. You know what I mean? And I, 
I would write, I'd, I'd write down the number and then hide it from myself. <laughs> I know there's people in here that hid stuff from themselves. Only users lose drugs, you know. Because I know stuff. I don't know about you guys, but I'm burdened with the gift of insight, you know. <laughs> I've, got, I've got these two parallel tracks of um, one of them is of profound ignorance. I mean, there is so much about which I know so little. It is stupefying. And at the same time, there's this parallel rail of arrogance. Those two things shouldn't shoot you together, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're as dumb as I am, you should be humble. <laughs> and I, and I, know, I know stuff like I know, I know it's better to, it's better to die cool than to live for one minute uncool. Like, I know that. And so I know it's not cool to call people at 4 o'clock in the morning on the telephone and say, oh, I'm dying, I need help. So, so yeah, I got to hide the number, you know? So I hide the number for myself. And I could come to you the next day, and I could, I, could write, I could rewrite the deal. You know what I mean? I could get up in the morning, shake it off. Ah, that's it. It's over. No more. It's done, you know? And uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going gonna, gonna to go. I'm going to be a good man. I'm going to do what good men do. Good men go to work. Good men bring the money home. Good men tell the truth. Good men go to the gym. I'm doing all that. It's my new plan. It's over. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, I go to, I go to work on time on Monday morning. I want a medal. <laughs> I want some recognition, you know. <laughs> but about halfway through Monday, I start getting a little proud of myself for my new plan, you know. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, good, sure glad we straightened out all that stuff, you know. Good thing that's not a problem anymore. Perhaps we were a little hasty, you know. Maybe I could just, the chemicals definitely have to go. Those powders never did me any good. Crack's not going to help your career, bro. <laughs> but you could have a few beers with your buds on Friday night. You know what I mean? That, that's, you know, you're over 21, you know. And then I think, yeah, that's a solid plan, you know. And then by the time I get off work on Monday, I'm like, you know what? I was a little hasty. You shouldn't stop things too quickly, you know. Maybe I'll get a six-pack on the way home, you know. And, uh, and then when you get to the 7-Eleven, you notice that the 12 is a much better value. And you guys know where this is going, you know what I mean? It's like by the time it's midnight, I've been back to the 7-Eleven twice, you know, <laughs> on a work night, working my program. And, uh, and that's me. Well, one morning I woke up and I didn't have another plan. I, I was screwed and I knew I was screwed. And, um, and I called that number. I called, I called Serenity Lodge. I said, help. And... Uh, the, back to the ignorance, arrogance thing, I really kind of thought they would have heard of me. <laughs> Maybe send a helicopter or a limousine or something, you know. But they hadn't heard of me, and uh, they just wanted to know what kind of insurance I had. And I was baffled by the question. I thought, what does it have to do with it? You know, insurance. I, I don't have any insurance. Remember Bob and the whole new life? That's, that's why I'm calling you. <laughs> well, I didn't have insurance, and they couldn't help me. Click. All I know is that's the first time that I ever asked anybody for anything that looked like help. And it didn't go well. I don't know if it was two weeks later or two months later, but I went to the Norfolk emergency room in the middle of the night and begged them to take me off the street. You gotta help me. I'm dying out here. I'm an alcoholic. And they asked me if I was a danger to myself. I didn't understand that question either. I was like, yeah, look, look at me. I'm not taking very good care of myself. <laughs> they were like, no, are you suicidal? And I was disgusted by that question. No, 
I'm a little homicidal maybe, but <laughs> I, just, I just need help. And I didn't know that that was, a, if, if you need to know that, by the way, if you tell them you're a danger to yourself, they'll get you upstairs and get you on some chemical relief, and that's all I really wanted. Uh, but I didn't know that. I wasn't street smart enough, and so they just put me in a little room on the paper, paper uh, cloth there, you know, until my blood pressure came down and my heart rate came down, and, and they streeted me out in that cruel morning light. I don't know about you guys, but I like to do, I'm like a vampire, you know, when I'm on a run. <laughs> i, I got to be home before the cruel rays of sunshine fall upon me. I, I, I don't want to be observed by the good people, people that know where they're going and why they're going there. So I got to get home and I'm walking through that cruel morning light with the number for the Norfolk Inebriate Program, which was nothing more than a little 72 hour. It's in one of those places, I'm sure you have them here, but it's one of those places where nothing ever sticks there, right? You know, like, like six months ago, it was a, a tarot card reading place and a year before that it was a massage park you know what I mean there's just nothing there you know but at that time the city of Norfolk was operating a 72-hour non-medical detox which I found out later was really mostly street drunks who were coming in and out of the cold but I don't know I don't know anything anyway I call that number I said help I need help and the guy says can you get here and I said yeah I can, I can get there he said do you have a toothbrush and now I'm insulted again <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I got a toothbrush. And he goes, well, get your toothbrush and come on in. So I got my toothbrush, and I went on in. And this guy starts uh, what I know today to be a 12-step. Now, I'm 22 years old at this point. My skin is bad. I'm two inches taller than I am now, 50 pounds heavier. Uh, I couldn't put two sentences together to convey an idea. I, I could grunt. I could object to things, you know. I think smoking here was my most complete sentence, you know. Smoke? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, you know what I mean? And I, and I could, and I did. And, and this guy starts talking to me about Alcoholics Anonymous and wants to know if I've ever considered Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that condition that I just described to you, I managed to communicate to him that it was some sort of a religious thing and that I wasn't you know, jiggy with all that. And, uh, but, but thanks for asking. I mean, I came up in the 70s. I don't know if there's any old people in here, but it, 70s was a weird time. Uh, yeah, there's one. Um, there were all manner of failed communes and weird cults popping up, you know, and, uh, you know, you'd be like, what happened to Billy? You know, it's like, oh, shit, the Moody's got him. <laughs> Google the Moonies. It's a real thing. All, I, all I'm trying to tell you is that I was super suspicious of anything like this, you know, any sort of club, you know, and, um, but anyway, I, I managed to communicate to that, and I remember, this guy makes the rounds because I hear it all the time, but he said, hey, listen, man, you don't have to worry about any of that in Alcoholics Anonymous. You, you can make anything your higher power in Alcoholics Anonymous. You could make that doorknob your higher power in Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the condition that I just described you, I had a crystal clear thought. I was like, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. <laughs> They're worshiping doorknobs in Alcoholics Anonymous. You're not, you're not going to get me with that. <laughs> but I went to my very, very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Just sat in there with the nice fellows, chain smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and talking about drinking. It was lovely, playing spades. God, I keep doing that. I'm sorry. So, um, but I went to my first AA meeting, and it was not the attractive group of people that I see looking back at me right now. This, I'm 22 years old. It looked like God's waiting room. <laughs> 
I mean, these people, the median age was like 172 years old. All of them were smoking, two of them were on oxygen. I mean, I really wish I had a videotape of what actually happened there, <laughs> because all I've got is the sort of freak show, House of Mirrors, Victorian freak show, psychotic memory of the whole thing. But it really, you know, if you want what we have, you know, I mean, I was like. <laughs> I, I was a little concerned that it was contagious, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I was, but I was dying, you know, and, um, and I, and I had all these yets, right? I had all these yets in front of me. I, I hadn't slept under a bridge. I'd never raised my hand to a woman. I, uh, I'd never lost a job. Turned out that wasn't true. My father, the veterinarian, remember him? He had to fire his idiot son. Uh, I was like 15 or 16 years old because he couldn't stay out of the kitty medicine. <laughs> but I would have told you that I'd never lost a job, so don't confront me with the facts, you know? <laughs> And I still remember the old man saying to me, David, alcoholism doesn't care about any of that. Park Avenue to Park Bench, doesn't matter. Once you start, you can't stop. And when you stop, you can't stay stopped. If you've got either, either one of those two things, then you have a problem that you can't solve. That's how powerlessness was presented to me. Once I start, I can't stop because of the allergy of the body. I don't know about you, but I never had a drink of alcohol that didn't think it would be a splendid idea to have another drink of alcohol. I never put my hand over the glass. I never said, oh, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> I said, you. But when I stop, I can't stay stopped because of this thing. Just chat. I don't know about your head, but mine is constantly talking to me. Our, 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 I was talking, uh, we were talking before the meeting, our buddy Bob D says it in a way that I relate to it. My mind is always doing threat assessments. Just constantly reporting to me on the environment. Watch out for that dude, he hasn't even smiled yet. He doesn't like you at all. <laughs> I, gotta I, gotta I, gotta, I gotta sort through the constant inbound information. And eventually my mind is gonna say, why don't we get drunk? I don't know why it's more than one of us. Why don't we get drunk? <laughs> And I'm like, no, you know how we are. We quit. We're not drinking anymore. And then my mind tells me the greatest lie that it's ever told me. And I don't know what your lies are, but mine always says it's going to be different this time. It's going to be different. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna behave ourselves. We're going to keep our hands to ourselves. We're going to be nice. We're not going to drive. No driving. It's going to be different. So anyway, once I start, I can't stop. When I stop, I can't stay stopped. And on my own, I can, I can do nothing about that situation. Now I'm one of those people that said, thanks for the information, I split, and for the next year I did not drink, I did not drug, I did everything a good man ought to do for an entire year, no AA, no nothing. And if you'd have come up to me during that time and said, hey, how you doing, David? I'd been like, I'm not drinking. <laughs> I don't know if any of you guys have done sobriety like that. It's like an endurance test, you know? I'm not drinking. Yeah, David, you mentioned that like 140 times. <laughs> How else are you doing? It's like, I just told you. <laughs> it's everything I can do not to drink. It's everything I want to do to find a reason to drink. And uh, so you know what happens. I do that year. I'm living, I'm living with the, the, this woman who's one of the most kind, accommodating people uh, I ever met. And, uh, and I'm keeping fish. 
I got a hobby. I'm, 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 I read everything there is to read about fish. And within six months, I, I, I started with a $9.99, $10, 10-gallon aquarium kit. And within six months, I had turned a 300-square-foot apartment into a tropical paradise. <laughs> and you can't go near any of it, because you might breathe on it and give them the ick, you know? And that poor woman couldn't walk across the room without me having something to say about it. You know what I mean? How come you're walking across the room like that? You, gotta, you think you're better than me? Is that what it is, you know? So you know what happens. Eventually, I break a shoelace, and I got to get drunk, you know? <laughs> and I did, and I came in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for like five years. And when I say in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't mean I came in and I joined a home group and got, took a commitment for a job in that home group and got a sponsor and started going through the steps. What I mean is if the meeting started at 8, I came in at 8.05, because I can't be bothered with all your little prayers and whatnot. And I probably sat by the door, you know what I mean? And I probably split before you gave out your little poker chip trophies or whatever weird thing you were going to do next. I don't want your phone number, and I, you know, I got enough friends, thank you very much, you know, and boom, and I'd split. That's what I mean when I say coming in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I ended up, I'm going to try to get sober. I have no idea where I started. Um, I think I'm about uh, halfway done. <laughs> I've only got like 100. 20 minutes to talk. Um, so I remember in the last year of my drink, and I remember I was, I was, I was, uh, I was on a dry spell, and I was due to go uh, fishing with my brother and my father, two of my greatest drinking buddies. And I've, I've been sober for a while, and it was every intention that I had in my head that I'm going to go down to Florida, and I'm going to show those two dudes what it was like to have a good time fishing without drinking. I'm going to show them. Now, I've never had a good time not drinking. But I'm going to go show them what that's like. And what I didn't know was that my brother had booked a connecting flight out of Charlotte. And so when I got on my plane in Charlotte, I got on and my little brother was sitting there with a double jack on the rocks just waiting for me. He had booked a seat right next to me. You can't be rude in a situation like that, you know? Off I went. So I go on a 10-day run with my brother and my father. We had a great time down in South Florida fishing and, and you know, doing what we do. And uh, I remember on the way back, on the plane ride home, I needed that drink. I could not wait for the nice lady to come down the aisle and say, may I get you something to drink, sir? And I'm the kind of guy who wants to order like four. <laughs> you have to explain to me that I can only give you two. <laughs> so I'll be like, all right, I'll take two, and then I'll give ten, but keep an eye on me, you know? And um, as that whiskey rose to my head, I remember thinking, I'm just going to stay drunk for the rest of my life. That's it. I'm done. I'm done trying to stop. I'm done trying to quit. It's too painful. Um, it hurts too much to fall off the wagon. I'm going to just, I'm never drawing a sober breath again for the rest of my life. And I'm not as tough as some of you guys. I've heard people say the same thing, you know, did that for 30 years. I only made it like three months in that condition. And that particular run was interrupted by the Fair, city of Fairfax, uh, a place I had not planned on going when I woke up that morning. Uh, and I was so hammered when the nice man pulled me over. And all I was doing was straightening out 123. You ever, you ever go through old time, old town Fairfax, you know, that serpentine road? I just, I just kind of took that one eye, just straightened the road out. But the answer to the question, have you been drinking, sir, was you bet. I am, I am, yes. <laughs> I should not be operating this vehicle, sir. And that was my one and only DUI. Okay, I mean, I, I was running with cats that had three or four of them, you know, and um, 
But anyway, that was my one and only, and I remember getting out of jail on that, that cold February morning and uh, standing across a law office that my grandfather had started. And um, I never knew my grandfather, but all my life people had told me stories about my grandfather. I always showed up, oh, your grandfather went out of his way and he did this, and my grand your grandfather was such a kind man, your grandfather, blah, 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 you know. And I'm just standing there, you know, trying to get the first cigarette in and hold down the warm orange juice and cold sausage they slid under the bars, you know, and reevaluating my life in front of my grandfather's law office. And I'm just, I'm just thinking, I, I'm going to be dead before I'm 30. This has got to stop. Here was a guy who'd done something with his life, you know, and I've, I've done nothing. I've done nothing but wreck stuff and lie to people and hurt people. I've been nothing but a pain in the ass my whole life. It's got to stop. And then my cousin pulled up and said, I know where we can get Budweiser's for breakfast. And I hopped in the seat. I said, thank God you're here. I was thinking about quitting drinking, you know. <laughs> and I put the plug in the jug one more time about a month after that. And I ended up where I finally end up is I'm six months sober. Six months abstinent of alcohol, mostly abstinent of everything else. Um, and I had gotten to the place. The reason I know my sobriety date is October 24th, 1989. I did not intend to stay sober for the next 32 years after that. I just know that the Grateful Dead played in Charlotte uh, on, April tw on October 23rd, 1989. <laughs> and I can't keep living this way, you know. So. <laughs> I had to back calculate. I needed a ticket stub to get my sobriety date because I, I, I wasn't planning on coming to AA. But it was right around this time of year, just before Thanksgiving, I suppose. And I'd gotten to the place, our book describes it as the jumping off place. I'd gotten to the place where I was miserable drunk and I was miserable sober. I could not imagine my life with or without alcohol. And if I'm miserable drunk and I'm miserable sober, I'm not talking about for a week. I'm talking about my life is like that every single day. And alcohol no longer set me free. And I'm miserable when I'm sober and I'm miserable when I'm drunk. You know, if those are the only two things I got, you know which one I'm going to pick, you know, because there might be one more yeehaw left in that bottle. But if that's all you've got to show me, I've seen enough, you know. And that thought occurred to me, that it occurred to me many times and it always disgusted me. You should just kill yourself. And I thought it was a good idea. It made sense to me. You know, if this is all you've got to show me, I have definitely seen enough. I want out. I want off the ride. So I, I decided to jump off a building because my, my ego doesn't want me to survive a half-hearted suicide attempt. <laughs> I have to face my mother and explain that to her, you know. If I'm going to do it, I want to do it right. And if you're ever shopping for buildings to jump off of, I can help you. There's some stuff you got to consider, you know, like it can't be too short. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you don't want to you don't want to deliver yourself to some condition where maybe you can only like maybe wiggle your left ear a little bit. Then how are you going to communicate to people how thirsty you are? You know, trapped with the one thing I've been trying to escape my whole life, this chatterbox in between my ears. Now it's got me all to all to my all to itself. Oh, you done screwed up now, bro. You know. That seems awful, right? But if it's too high, I might have to spend a significant amount of time regretting my decision. <laughs> and the thing about that is it would make me very uncomfortable. <laughs> I do not mind being dead, but I don't want to be uncomfortable. 
And all I can tell you is that something inside of me, I believe it is the voice of the loving God, said to me, why don't you just go back to one more dumb, stupid AA meeting? Not that one where they hurt your feelings that time. Another one. And um, I was one of those people. I, was, I, was, I, was, uh, I wouldn't call myself an agnostic, okay? I was a militant atheist. I mean the obnoxious kind. I mean a evangelical in my atheism. I, I, I really wanted to have a conversation about this, about the non-existence of God. Nobody in AA would argue with me, which I, which I found incredibly disappointing. You know, I was like, that's cool, David. You can believe whatever you want. I was like, no, 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 seriously, I've got some good ideas. It's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but, but the fact that I could believe anything I want, I think saved my life. I think it absolutely saved my life. I mean, if you think about the traditions, if you told me that it was going to cost me something, that I would have a monthly due, that'd be enough to get, take a guy like me out. You know, nope, nope, not joining your little club. If you told me I had to believe something. So anyway, I do believe it was the voice of a loving God that cares enough for me when I don't even care to acknowledge and, and, and I'm perfectly willing to argue against the existence of my higher power does not care about any of that. All love, nothing but love all-powerful, instantly accessible, all the time. Trouble is unblocked. So anyway, go to one more dumb, stupid AA meeting. And you know what it's like to roll up to an AA meeting. I saw it tonight. You know, there's people, group of people standing outside smoking and gesturing. You know, they've obviously got big, important deals going on. You know what I mean? They're obviously somebody, you know? I got none of that going on, man. I'm walking up to this thing, and I've been just shopping for buildings to jump off all day. And, uh, and I see that, and then I see the guy see me. I see the guy see me, and I know what that means. I know that dude's going to talk to me. And I don't want to talk to this guy, you know what I mean? But I know he's going to talk to me, and I just surrender to it, you know? And I walked up, he stuck out his hand. Hi, my name is Walt. Hey, well, I'm David. And he patted me on the shoulder. And he looked me in the eye and he said, everything's going to be all right. You know, I must have looked like somebody who needed a little reassurance, you know. He never laid eyes on me in his life and he offered me a little, little bit of reassurance. And he, I make a big deal out of this because it saved my life. He walked me into this room. He, he broke away. He was having a perfectly lovely conversation with his friends now. You know, about all his big cool finances and romances and how sobriety's been so darn good to him. But he was looking for a guy like me. He was awake to the primary purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was looking for somebody like me who was not attractive or inviting. I was hostile, angry when I got here. I was a little scary, I think. Really, I was just terrified. But he took me inside and he showed me where the coffee was and he got me a half a cup of coffee and he sat me down in a chair and he introduced me to a guy, got a little chit chat going, you know? Just, just a little friendly chit-chat. And he, and he had to go chair the meeting. He patted me on the shoulder one more time. He said, don't worry. No one's going to call on you. And I thought, God damn, this guy's a wizard. <laughs> How does he know my worst fear is speaking in front of a room full of people? I can't talk to a room full of people. You know what I mean? I'll lose my train of thought. I'll start babbling like an idiot. I'll have to run out of the room. I'll have to leave town. I failed college courses because I couldn't stand up in front of a group of people and talk 
in front of them. I was terrified to do that. I used to just go to speaker meetings, by the way, because I knew I could just sit there and no one would call on me. All I know is that he made me feel comfortable in that room. I'm not going to say he made me feel com I wasn't comfortable. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I wasn't comfortable in my own home. I wasn't comfortable around people who loved me. But I was comfortable. I knew what everybody's shoes looked like in AA for six months. You know what I mean? I knew what the tile on the floor looked like. I couldn't look people in the eye. You know, I was so full of shame and guilt and remorse and despair and, and nothing going on in between my ears. But he made me feel comfortable enough, and I remember getting a crystal clear thought. I don't remember what they said at that meeting. You know what I mean? It wasn't some lightning bolt nugget of wisdom that just dropped out of the sky and changed my life forever. But I remember thinking, I don't have a better idea. I really don't have a better idea. I'm going to do what these people do. And I think to sell it to the committee up here, I think, I think we settled on a year. <laughs> there was one of them up there that wouldn't commit to more than a year. For a year, right? Yeah, a year, just a year. Let's do what they do for a year. I'm getting a bunch of blanks. Nobody else has a committee? <laughs> All right. I'll go it alone. <laughs> but stuff started coming out of my mouth after that that usually didn't come out of my mouth. Stuff like, I don't know what a sponsor is. What's a, what is this? You guys talk about sponsors. What's a sp sponsor? just somebody who's been through the 12 steps, willing to take you through the 12 steps, David. That makes sense. What's the deal with a home group? I mean, you, you got to live there? Is that thing? Is it like a halfway house? No, no, man. A home group is just a meeting you make a commitment to. You see that literature over there? You see that coffee? I mean, it didn't happen by accident. Somebody cared enough about this meeting to show up early and get all that stuff ready so that, you know, we could come here and criticize it. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And he told me, he told me this, and, and if you're new, God bless you. I'm so grateful that there's so many newcomers here. That, that is so awesome. I'll tell you the thing that they told me when I picked up what I hope to be my last white chip. Man told me three things I never forgot. He said, he said, son, you never have to hurt like you're hurting today ever again. You never ever have to take another drink ever again. And you never have to go through anything by yourself ever again. And he let that sink in for a heartbeat or two. And he said, unless that's what you want. That's the trouble with a guy like me. That's exactly what I want. You can just leave me alone. Thank you very much. <laughs> but on that day, I, 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 I took a little bit of advice. Somebody told me to just start saying yes to Alcoholics Anonymous. Just say yes to AA, David. We already know you don't want to do it. Okay? If AA asks you something, you just say yes. Hey, a bunch of us are going to coffee at Lums after the meeting. You want to go? I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, okay, I'll go. And I know that I'm going to get stuck in the booth, and I know that I'm not going to be able to advocate my way out of the booth, you know? I know I'm just going to be stuck in there, just dying, you know? And I was right, you know? I'm just sitting there, you know, just chain-smoking cigarettes, thinking I was going to explode from anxiety. How you doing, David? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, David, would you make the coffee next week? Yeah, I don't really know how to make coffee. That's okay, we'll teach you. All right. <laughs> David, how would you like to be the intergroup rep? Like, I don't know what that is. We don't know what that is either, but... <laughs> but they meet on the second Tuesday of the month at the Easy Does It Club at 7.30. Why don't you go down there and find out what that's all about? Come back and tell us about it. Okay. 
and all I can tell you is that the path opened up, man. I started doing those steps, man. You guys made it so easy for me. I, I believe that in that moment, I came to believe that something other than me was going to restore me to sanity. You know, I made a decision to go ahead and get on with the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Next thing I know, I'm writing an inventory with a sponsor, you know, and I'm, and I'm, I found out that I'm capable of hating you for the very same thing I'm capable of doing to the next guy. Write down your fears, David. Uh, never done that before. I wrote, I sat down with that blank sheet of paper and a pen in my hand. What am I afraid of? My number one fear. You know what it is? Being alone. And when I say alone, I don't mean like in my own company. You know, I got an engineering mind. I like projects. I like piddling and listening to music. I'm happy in my own company. I mean like forsaken, abandoned, discarded. Nobody's glad to see me alone. I don't matter. Nobody. That kind of alone. And I'm looking at that in my own handwriting, and I'm like, I did not know that about myself. I wonder what my number two fear is. <laughs> you know what it is? It's people. <laughs> and I began to have a spiritual experience right there. It's like suddenly everything, I wanted to, I was like a little kid, I wanted to hang it up on the refrigerator. I'm like, look, I'm afraid of being alone and I'm afraid of people. <laughs> this is why I need chemical assistance. This is why it's hard to be David. <laughs> you know, and before you know it, I'm out on the amends trail and I'm being wrong about stuff. My sponsor was super clear about that. He said, David, you're done being sorry. Now you get to be wrong. He said it to me like it was a privilege. I get to be wrong. And being wrong, I've never had anybody argue with me. <laughs> never had anybody talk to Hey, I was, I was wrong the way I treated you. It's like, it's okay. <laughs> no, you don't want to. You don't want to tell me it wasn't true? No. Nobody ever has. <laughs> so I'm going to slow down and tell this, okay? Because um, it's important. What happens to me is uh, for about five or six years, I did everything you asked me to do. I worked as hard as anybody you've ever seen work in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said yes to everything. And, uh, and, I, and I, I worked the steps. I started making those amends. And those promises started coming true in my life. I know we read them at every meeting because alcoholics love to hear. We love to get stuff, you know. Who's not up for a new freedom and a new happiness, you know. And um, that stuff started happening to me. Well, the whole time that, that, that my life is, is getting better, all I ever wanted to be was a family man. Pretty little thing comes along. We're married. All I ever wanted to be was a father. Three boys come along. All I ever wanted to do was own my own business. One drops in my lap, not for my entrepreneurial ability or anything like that, just an opportunity. And you guys gave me the courage to say, okay, I'll try. Now I got my own business, got my own family, everything. I'm a citizen. <laughs> I've never been a citizen. <laughs> I needed a lot of clipboards in my life during this time. I was like uh, the, the block, Civic League security block captain for Colonial Place Riverview. I was, uh, I was a Cub Scout dude, you know, cause, and I was a martyr about that because, you know, nobody else would do it, you know, fell to me, you know. So the whole time that my, my sweet little life has taken off like a rocket, my attendance at Alcoholics Anonymous starts going down, 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 down. And the thing about that, the thing that I really am at pains to tell you about that is I never made a decision 
to leave Alcoholics Anonymous. I never thought that I wasn't an alcoholic. I didn't want to drink. I wasn't mad at anybody in AA. I just leaked away. I just leaked away one commitment at a time. I had a sponsor die, and I didn't hire another one. Everybody in my home group's kind of selfish anyway. Besides, the baby's got colic, you know what I mean? I, I really need to be home with the baby. And I just leaked away from AA one meeting at a time, one commitment at a time. And I'll fast forward, I was 14 years sober. 14 years sober, 16 years ago, what, however that math works out, 18 years ago. Anyway, I'm being asked, asked to leave a marriage. My business is failing. My children don't particularly seem glad to see me. I think they're happier when I wasn't around. In short, I, I had turned back into the same dude who was keeping fish in that apartment, hypercritical. Nothing's ever right, you know what I mean? What's wrong, David? Nothing, nothing. That's what alcoholism feels like for me, you know what I mean? Nothing's wrong, it just ain't quite right. It just ain't quite right. And I have a terrible suspicion that you're the problem. So it was the pain of that, that separation and, and, and that life that, that drove me back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went back and I picked up a white chip at every single meeting I went to, not because anybody told me to do it, just every time somebody held up that white chip and said, would anybody here like to try this way of life one day at a time? I stood up and walked up to the room and said, I would. And I got that chip. I didn't care. You know what I mean? I'm not giving back that 14 years because I didn't drink. I didn't want to drink. You know what I mean? But it didn't matter to me. I didn't care if that whole room thought I was drunk as a monkey that morning. It didn't matter. I was dying. I was back to contemplating suicide again, 14 years sober. And I expected to be swamped by a bunch of people. Oh, here's my phone number. Call me. And I was not. But one dude said, let's go get a coffee. I said, okay. So I'm at Starbucks interviewing this guy to be my sponsor. You know, you got to interview people, you know what I mean? Like, I'm bringing all this to the table, you know what I mean? <laughs> you better have some game, bro, you know? <laughs> and so I'm just sitting there at the Starbucks telling that guy my tale of woe, you know, which is what I know how to do. Poor me, poor me. And that guy cut me off in the middle of my tale of woe, which I never like. And he said, yeah, man, he's full of guys like you. You're suffering from untreated alcoholism. And I was insulted. But when you hear the truth, you can't unhear it. I was restless, irritable, discontent, suicidal. And I, did, I still didn't want to drink. He said, listen, man, if you want to, if, if, uh, he said, I want you to join a home group. I want you to be an important member of that home group. I don't care what job you do. Just be part of what makes that group go, you know? I've got this little fantasy, like, I like to imagine my own home group, like two home group members talking about something, and, and one of them asks the other one a question, and the answer to that question is, I don't know, David usually handles that. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a big thing, it just needs to be something, right? Anyway, that's how I heard it. And he said, listen, if you want to work the steps with me, we're going to work through them quickly so we can get on with the business of helping other people, because that's why we're here. Now, I am terribly embarrassed to tell you guys that that's the first time I heard that. And I'll give you credit, you might have been telling me that the whole way. But before that moment, you would have heard me saying things like, my recovery, my program. You hear the selfishness in that? 
My, my, my program includes yoga. Yeah, you're right, David, that is your program. <laughs> we got one over here with numbers on it. Am, am I the only one? Okay. But I had always treated Alcoholics Anonymous like it was my own little personal mental health shop. Oh, geez, I need a meeting, you know? I better get to a meeting because I'm not feeling quite right. I've, and if I left that meeting and felt better, that was a good meeting. Good meeting. If I left that meeting and didn't feel better, that meeting sucked. You know what I mean? It was not on my radar that I had a purpose there. Not even on my radar. I'm so embarrassed to tell you guys that. But all I can tell you is that I went, I recommitted to the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous with a sponsor that day and started going this, through this book one more time, line by line, just the way I do it with men today. And do you know that that message that we're here to help other people is cleverly hidden on every single page <laughs> of this book? I don't know how I missed it. I missed it because I'm terribly selfish and self-centered. I hear what I want to hear. I came in in sort of a cafeteria environment in AA too. There was, you could go to a meeting and people would, would say, take what you need, leave the rest. Okay, leave that up to me. <laughs> I'll let you know what's good, you know. So I'm out of time. I, I always run out of time. I always talk about drinking too long. <clears throat> All I can tell you is that I have not looked back since that moment. I am an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous today. I have a service position in my home group. I have a service position in my district. I'm the current DCM for District 14 Norfolk. I, um, <clears throat> in non-COVID times, I'm one of eight people who gets to take a meeting to the Norfolk City Jail. My sponsees and I take a meeting into a treatment center, um, Safe Harbor. My home group takes, a, takes its turn to take a commitment at the Virginia Beach Psych Center. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the middle of this thing. I've never been, in 32 years of recovery, I've never been more active in AA than I am now. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I've never been happier in my life. So today, my life is full of peace. It is full of a simple contentment. Our marriage reconciled. My lovely wife is here tonight. We got to do our favorite thing, which was get in the car and listen to music and chat all afternoon. I get to be the father of three boys that have never seen their daddy drunk. I get to be a son to my mother, a brother to my sister, and a friend to my friends. And none of that is my fault. It's yours. Because of Alcoholics Anonymous, rooms like this and people like you, I'm having a good time today. And I'm not interested in getting drunk today. And that's all I ever thought about. Thank you for letting me share tonight.